All right. Well, welcome everybody um, to our, oh, what is this? Our third, our fourth maybe class? I'll find out before I uh, post the video to all of our, uh, our deals. But our next class at any rate um, on uh, continuity and covenant, that relationship between Israel and the church, between the Old and New Testaments and all that sort of thing. Um, last week, we did talk about worship and some of those worship changes and how all that sort of thing uh, kind of reflects on the church's worship. Not into too much detail, but just showing some of the, uh, the patterns. And are there any, um, anything that y'all wanted to revisit on that topic before we jump into today's topic? And if not, we will jump right on in. Okay. I'm seeing thumbs up. That, that, that gives me permission. So here we go. Um, today, we're going to be talking about... Sam's got a question. Oh, who does? <laughs> Wait, who has a question? Pam. Oh, Pam. Pam's got a Pam, question. I don't even see you here, Pam. Oh, that's because I jumped on a minute late. So. Oh. Can you hear me? Um, yes, I can hear you. Uh, the question I had about our worshiping was... You know, when they did the sacrifices and when they sprinkled the blood, um, I was the question I had, I can't remember what the, the vessel is that we sprinkled the water. Is that symbolic of the blood being sprinkled on the people? Um, there is some similarities. So the vessel that we use, it's called the aspergellum, um, where we cast our aspersions, as Father Barry always used to like to joke. Um, casting our aspersions, but um, yeah, in the in the temple time, they generally would make kind of a makeshift aspergillum out of hyssop, and sometimes you'll see churches that do that instead of using um, the silver utensil for it, like we have. Some will just use branches, kind of more in that Old Testament pattern, um, you know, for sprinkling the uh, the blood, um, or or in our case, the water, and. Remember that the, um, whenever we're doing water sprinkling, it's reminders of our baptismal waters, which is um, being baptized into the blood of Christ. So there is some connections there. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. In, in, anybody else? I do have it on the grid view, but um, if, if you kind of use the, the little tool to raise your hand, that's, that helps, or just take yourself off mute and interject, and we'll hear you then as well. So. Okay, well, um, yeah, so today we're going to talk about the different groups of um, the different kind of sects or schools of Judaism that existed in the Second Temple time, specifically in the New Testament period. And the reason why this is important is sometimes we have this kind of false notion that um, Judaism has always been one thing, it is one thing. It, it hasn't really changed. And what we read about in the Torah, in the Law of Moses, or in the Old Testament um, is exactly what's going on, maybe without sacrifices, but otherwise, you know, that those things really look the same. And it's, and it's just not the case. Just, just like when anybody says, our church looks like the first century, they're, they're feeding you a, a bill of goods. It's just not true. <laughs> you know, times change. Uh, practices change and theology develops and that's okay you know there's 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 no need to be exactly like what's going on in prior generations a certain amount of development is good and to be expected so um 
we, we mentioned before um, in, in the Bible, we have the return of the exiles. So the, 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 the Israelites were exiled twice in the Old Testament. Um, the northern tribes were exiled by the Assyrians. And then a generation later, the southern tribes, so Judah, was ex exiled by the Babylonians. In that northern exile, the Assyrians were really good at destroying people groups when they did the exile. So they would kind of um, mix the peoples that they exiled in with other peoples to destroy their unique identity. That was kind of the way the Assyrians worked. The Babylonians preferred usually to um, keep those people groups somewhat distinct and learn from them. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans did that even better than the Babylonians did. And of course, the Babylonians were first, and then we have the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then after that, the Romans. And I'm squishing hundreds of years of history into like a sentence there. Uh, but so when, when they came back, so we're talking some of the later prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah, that sort of time period, from the Babylonian exile, the Israelites, now the Jewish people, um, as they were known pretty much from that time, they did not ever kind of run their own show. They were always a vassal kingdom. You never had the Davidic king return. And those empires, so Babylon, like I said, gets conquered by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians eventually give way to the Greeks. And the, the Greek conquests which happen in between what we would call the Old and New Testament period with Alexander the Great. And then when he, when he died, his kingdom split into several kingdoms, that sort of thing. That Greek conquest was a major change for the Jewish people. First of all, not everybody came back to the Holy Land from Babylon. You still had a large Jewish population in the, in the areas that used to be Babylon. So we're talking um, modern day, um, you know, pretty much anywhere in kind of that Near East part of Asia, uh, Syria, um, some of the places of, along the Balkans, along the Mediterranean, all of that kind of Near Asian sort of um, Near East Asian was formerly the Babylonian Empire. And a bunch of people never came back. So you still had big Jewish populations in what they would have called the East. When the Greeks came, uh, the Greeks, as I said, were even better than the Babylonians at assimilating the peoples, but they were also really, really good at propagating their own culture. Greek culture affects everything that, Greek that Greece touches. And when the Romans finally come on the scene, the Romans basically just tried to perpetuate that, that, that same Greek culture only with their own empire. That Greek culture never goes away. And in what they would have called the West, um, Greek culture really reigns supreme. And it's during the fallout of that, th those, that conquest of the Greeks that we begin to see different movements schools and sects of Judaism form. Um, how many of y'all have read the, the books, the books of Maccabees in the Apocrypha? Okay, we have, we have a couple people here, yeah. 
So um, yeah, the book of Maccabees are not in the Hebrew Bible. They're not in the Protestant Old Testament. Uh, they are in the, in the Orthodox and Catholic Old Testaments um, because they were in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And, um, you know, long story short, Protestants basically took the Hebrew canon, the, the Roman Catholics and the, and the Orthodox took the Greek canon to one extent or another. But um, the book of Maccabees talks about when one of these Greek kings, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was kind of ruling over the, um, the Greek part of Syria. So, so when, when Alexander's kingdom splits into several parts, he had the part that was based in Syria. He, he comes and he conquers over, he, he takes the Holy Land from the Egyptian Greeks, and he decides he's going to be worshipped as a god. And you end up having this revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. It was led by a guy named Judah, Judah Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer. And what, what the Maccabees end up doing when they win is they start to set up a new kingship in Israel, even though it's not the Davidic kingship. These are from the priestly family, not the, not the kingly family, but they set themselves up as the kings anyway. What ends up happening is that this helps to start the, the breakup of Judaism into different schools, sects, and groups. So by the first century, we have a very distinct Eastern version of Judaism based out of Babylon and a very distinct Western version of Judaism, which is, which is, which is generally Greek-speaking and um, by the first century is largely based out of Egypt, out of Alexandria, Egypt. That Babylonian style of Judaism ends up having a huge influence on what becomes Palestine, what we would have called, what we call the Holy Land, what was the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And what ends up happening is we, we then have all these different groups that we're familiar with from the Gospels. So let's talk about some of those groups. First of all, we have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees we would call kind of a school of Judaism in those days. They're scholarly. Um, they're, they're big on the oral traditions. They're the perpetuators of the synagogue system. Um, and they're the forerunners of rabbinic Judaism of today. If you had to take a guess, would you say that these guys really arose from that Eastern Babylonian style Judaism or that Western Alexandrian Greek style Judaism? I'd say Greek. You'd say Greek? Okay. Say anybody Greek. else? Anybody else have, have a different take on that? No, they're thinkers. I don't know. That's a, that's good reasoning, because the Greeks are thinkers. I see um, CJ popped into Aspen's I iPad. What, what, do, you, do you have a take there, CJ? Um, well, that's, that's another group. That's another group. Okay. So the, yeah, so the Pharisees are not so, I mean, the temple matters when they're in, in the Holy Land. Uh, 
but the Pharisees can exist without the temple. They have the synagogue system, right? And if you remember from last week, the synagogue system develops during the Babylonian exile. The traditionalists, and the Pharisees are traditionalists par excellence, the traditionalists are from that Eastern Babylonian way of thinking. The, Greek, the Greeks, they're still scholarly, but it's a totally different way of thinking. They're the progressives. They're doing the new thing. They're, they're, uh, they're lining themselves up with Greek culture. Um, I see a hand. So is like that whole Paul versus Peter thing and that Peter and the whole Roman church versus the Protestants and they went and followed Paul and then kind of did their own deal? Um, uh, it's, it's, a different, it's a different issue. It's a different issue, but, but kind of a di different issue. So when you think of the Pharisees, basically think of traditionalism, um, it comes from the Babylonian exile, and it's the synagogue system. They become modern, they become rabbinic Judaism. Judaism as we know it today um, is the daughter of the Pharisees movement. The other group, and this is what CJ was talking about, the Sadducees, which really we can think of them less as a school and more of a party. The party of the Sadducees are very tied to the temple system. And that's because they're the ones that end up um, coming into power because that priestly family, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, are running the show. So the Sadducees, by the first century, they really appeal to the rich and powerful, to those with family connections. Um, they're not so concerned with perpetuating the, the, the traditions of the teachers in the synagogues. They're concerned with... Um, running in circles of power, and they're concerned with the temple system. In their own way, they are also highly conservative in that the Sadducees reject anything but the five books of Moses as being inspired. They don't recognize the rest of what we would call the Old Testament. And because it's not explicit in the five books of Moses, they reject the resurrection of the dead. This becomes a big thing in, in the Gospels and in Acts. Paul uses this issue to his advantage from time to time because Paul was a Pharisee. Um, but the Sadducees, so think of the Sadducees as largely the priests, um, the rich and the powerful, and tied to the temple system. At the time of, of, of Jesus and the apostles, it seems that the Sadducees and the Pharisees kind of had equal re representation in the Sanhedrin, in the ruling council in Jerusalem. And that's, again, why in the book of Acts, Paul sometimes will kind of get off the hook by sparking fights, by saying, okay, I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. That's why I'm here. And then all the Pharisees say, oh, yeah, we support this guy. And all the Sadducees say, no, away with this guy. And then they start to fight amongst each other, right? The Sadducees don't survive past the destruction of, much past the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because they are so tied to the temple, they can't adapt, right? Okay, then we have another group there, um, in, in the first century. Um, this is the Essenes. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, many scholars think that that community, um, the Qumran community was a sect of the Essenes. And we really can consider them less of a school and more of a sect. The Essenes seem to have gotten their start from priests 
who got disgusted with the corruption of the temple. And they decided, we're done with this whole system. We're going out into the desert and we're going to wait for the coming of the Messiah who's going to fix the temple. Um, they were very much, much a messianic kind of cult. They were obsessed with ritual cleanliness. Um, some groups of the Essenes um, didn't like to, they, they, they didn't marry because sexual relations weren't, were, were ritually defiling in their eyes and stuff like that. Um, they're very much ascetics. Some people have thought that John the Baptist may have been influenced by some, some of the Essene asceticism. Maybe, maybe not. That there's, there's some, some confusion on that. But again, these guys fade out and pretty much die off with the destruction of the temple because their entire messianic hope was that the Messiah would come back and purify the temple. Their whole reason of existing was the temple's been corrupted and needs to be purified. Okay, if it's destroyed, they've kind of lost their reason to exist. There's nothing left to purify. So they pretty much die out um, when the temple's destroyed in 70 AD. Then we have, now we're going to get to the Greek groups, those very Western-minded, progressive theological folks. And um, we, we, uh, we can call these guys the Hellenistic or the Greek school within Judaism. And by the first century, they are very much based in Alexandria, Egypt. They are still Jewish, um, but they're very much Greek Jews. Greek culture has influenced everything they do. Um, I see a hand with Delaney. Yes, Delaney. What does Hellenistic mean? Um, Hellenistic means Greek. Um, it comes from the, the Greek word for Greek. <laughs> so so Hel Hellenistic means Greek. Um, why in English it's called Greek when in Greek it's called a, a derivative of Helen? Hellenist, I don't know, but, um, but that, yeah, that's what it is. Hellenistic means Greek. And yeah, so, so these guys are, are very much influenced by Greek culture. They have kind of married Old Testament piety and prophecy with, um, with Greek philosophy. So you may have heard of a writer called Philo or Philo. Have you all heard of Philo? Okay, Philo was kind of the quintessential Hellenistic Jew. He was their dude and the basis for a lot of their thinking. Um, they also were based out of Antioch. So you had a large group of, of these Greek-speaking Jews in Antioch. And they even, they were so strong that around the fifth century BC, they even had their own temple in Egypt where they did sacrifices they basically set up a whole new Judaism in exile. Whereas the Pharisees and the other Eastern folks said, if it's not in Israel, it's not real. They said, we're going to build where we are. And they used some of those Greek ideas to justify it. Um, what ends up happening is that, again, these guys disappear. It's a little less clear as to why they disappear. Some ideas are that as Christianity, Eastern Christianity, is on the rise in what, the, what they would have called Western Judaism. <laughs> that's odd for us, but, you know, that's, that's the way it is. Um, 
that that what what we see is some of those those eastern patriarchies those old patriarchies of of the of the christian east are right at the center of this western judaism alexandria and antioch in particular and so it seems that um many of these people convert and become christians um and others end up kind of drifting their their greek thinking drifts them further and further into greek paganism and then much later with the conquest of islam there's nothing left but islam and very 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 small minorities of eastern christians in some of those areas much later another group we have during this time um, are sometimes called the zealots these are less a religious group and they're more of a political group in the first century the zealots are freedom fighters they view themselves as um, revolutionaries advocating for the over overflow overthrow of rome you know rome is occupying the holy land at this point it's occupying palestine israel the zealots are going to use terrorist and guerrilla tactics to try to overthrow rome now you might have had zealots in different religious groups but they end up kind of historians tend to view them as kind of their own thing because um their actions ultimately lead to rome bringing its military might on palestine the destruction of the temple in 70 a.d and then um, early second century the complete destruction of jerusalem and basically the expulsion of the jews from from palestine at that point and um yeah these, so these guys are you know, freedom fighters terrorists however you want to look at it um you may have heard of the sicari named after the dagger they were fond of using to do their assassinations um, and, and these guys basically get killed off when Rome wipes them out um, by, the, by, the, by the early to middle second century. Then we've got emerging in the first century, of course, are Jewish Christians. That first generation of Christians pretty much keep their Jewish practices. They're still um, largely worshiping on the sabbath although they're also worshiping on sunday um you know many of them are are maintaining their some of their their various other cultural things the dietary issues um you know the, the jews among them are from time to time worshiping in the temple but what ends up happening with these guys is this kind of uniquely jewish form of christianity gradually in a numbers game just the gentiles kind of you know went out numerically and the culture of the church is less jewish because there's more gentiles and the church was never really about maintaining the jewish culture or a particular gentile culture and so that that's part of it another part of it is in the second century that early second century that last jewish rebellion um the pharisees set up one of their generals, a guy named Simon Bar Kokhba, they declare him to be the Messiah. And so the Jewish Christians at that time defect, they leave the armies. They're like, we can't follow a guy who's calling himself the Messiah. That's not Jesus. And they get ostracized by their own people. Um, there was already kind of tensions, but they, by this time they are no longer 
in the eyes of the, the rest of the Jews, they're no longer considered Jews because they defected in Jerusalem's time of need. What we do see in the book of Acts is that in the eyes of Rome, the early Christians were just another Jewish group, right? We see this in Paul's trials towards the end of Acts. It's just, it's just kind of considered another Jewish group. And then one other group that's important to point out is we do have a whole mess of regular folk that, that aren't really joining these parties. They're just kind of trying to go about their regular lives, doing their regular things. It very much seems that most of the apostles were among this regular folk. Um, in Hebrew, they're called Am Haaretz, um, the people of the land. Colloquially, kind of, they're just bumpkins. They're hillbillies. But they really aren't. It's just that they weren't the scholars that the Pharisees thought they ought to be. They weren't uber-traditional the way the Pharisees wanted them to be. And evidence does say, does suggest that the people of the land, the regular folk, tended to look up to the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were kind of, um, you know, they, they were the ultra-religious, and we're just trying to go about our daily lives here, you know? You know, the, the strictness of the Pharisees' party was a little bit above what they could handle. So that's really what we have going on in the first century. The reason why this is important is, is we, we need to remember that Christianity is not so much a daughter faith to what we would today call Judaism, as much as it is a sister faith to what we would today call Judaism. Judaism as we know it today and Christianity are developing at the same time. And they're coming from this same common root of um, Old Testament worship, um, influenced by all the things going on in the, in the first century, all the different kinds of Judaism in the first century. And, and that's, that's important to remember um, when we have these discussions. And this is something that it took me a while to really put together when I was in the Messianic movement, because a lot of what the, uh, the common assumption was by adopting some of these practices of modern Judaism, we're returning to our roots. That's not necessarily true. Not necessarily true. Um, I think we should also talk about um, kind of the way that, 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 different things happened regarding proselytes, conversions, and the Gentiles. Especially when you're reading the book of Acts, you're going to find certain people like Ananias, who um, came to see Paul after his vision, if you remember that passage. You know, Paul had the vision of the unclean things, God telling him to kill any, and not Paul, I'm sorry, Peter. And Peter says, I've, I've never eaten anything unclean. You know, what are you talking about, Lord? And then Ananias comes to his house and he becomes the first kind of Gentile convert, the first Gentile to be baptized, first Gentile to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ananias is what we would have called at the time God-fearers. Judaism was, the various forms of Judaism were considered legitimate religion in, in, in the Roman world. And Rome was just as multicultural as our, as our culture is today. Um, they had just as many varieties of religion as, they, as, as we do today. And so there were Gentiles that saw 
what Judaism had to offer, what, regardless of which kind of Judaism we're talking about. And they said, I want a part of that, but I'm not ready to go all the way and fully convert, um, get circumcised, give up my family ties and all that other sort of thing. And so they were, they were what were called God-fearers. They worshiped the God of Israel, but they did not fully convert and become Jews. You do have, though, full converts. So these are people that, um, they, you know, the, the men undergo, undergo circumcision, and they become Jews, even though ethnically they're Gentiles. They, be, they become part of the Jewish family by full conversion. The Pharisees were really big at making these kinds of converts. You'll remember where Jesus says, you, you'll, you'll travel over the, over the sea to make a convert, and then you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You know, this is the tendency that Jesus is talking about um, with, the, with the hypocrisy that, you know, some of these Pharisees were, were dealing with. At certain times, there is evidence that some of these conversions did happen by the sword. This is probably earlier in the history, more kind of during the Hasmonean period when um, they're kicking the, the Greeks out and trying to establish their own rule. They never quite succeed. But um, there is evidence that there were conversions by the sword. And again, that's important. Um, there is rightly a historical complaint, at least kind of more modern history, of Christianity um, forcing Jews to convert, convert under threat of, of violence or death, which is, which is totally against the gospel. But we do see that historically. And sometimes, again, when we're dealing with, you know, some of these groups that want to Judaize, want to, want to force Christianity to become Jewish, they will cite these things and say, well, Judaism has always been peaceful. We've never done that. Well, actually, that's not true. It's just it's been a really, really, really long time, <laughs> you know, and, and, and really it's regardless because that's not the right thing anyway. You know, converting by the sword is not true conversion anyway. Among religious Jews, there was no association with Gentiles. You did not eat with Gentiles because they could ritually defile you. So we're talking strict Pharisees um, to a lesser extent, the Sadducees, certainly the Essenes. Um, those types of folks. This is an area where Christianity was different because though there were some controversies like we see in Acts chapter 15, um, Christianity very much began to accept the Gentiles as Gentiles and have fellowship because the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of, of our ancestors. Um, that said, it was not uncommon to have mixed marriages between Jewish people and Gentiles in those days. We see, for example, in, in the book of Acts, um, if you remember, Paul is before the governor Felix, and he brings in his wife, Drusilla, and, who's, and Drusilla's a Jew. She's totally a secular Jew. She's, she's, she's you know, been, been Hellenized. She's very Greek and probably not very pious, but, you know, she is a Jew. That sort of thing happens. We also see this on the other end of the spectrum, with Timothy's, St. Timothy, his parents, um, if, if memory serves, his father was Jewish, his mother was a Gentile. Um, nevertheless, he was raised in a godly fashion by his, by his parents and grandparents. And so even though it was a mixed marriage, and it doesn't look like, you know, he, he, that Timothy's mother converted, 
to Judaism, you still had that God-fear kind of polity, or piety, rather. And then we have also the same kind of example in the, in the family of the Herods. Um, you had mixed marriages between the Herods and the Greeks. The Herods, again, totally secular people, um, or what we would call secular today. Um, for them, that Greek culture meant being okay to a certain extent with the pagan ways, and as their, their, you know, their wicked lives really show. Okay, so um, questions about uh, kind of the, the, the landscape in first century among the first century Jews. I had a question about, uh, uh, so when was the act, you're mentioning that Christians, is that later? Are you talking like the, the period with uh, the Latins and the Franks or were you talking like early Christians uh, with, uh, with- With the persecution? Yeah, with, well, the conversion by the sword. Um, yeah, we're really talking, yeah, we're really talking much later history. Um, yeah. You know, th this, this tends to be, this tends to, this kind of thing tends to be a function of when a particular religion is kind of the official religion of the state. Um, so when, when was this happening among the Jews? Well, when the, the brief period of time that, that the Holy Land was independent, being ruled by the Hasmonean kings, right? It was the religion of the state. Uh, the same thing is true when, when Christianity does these things. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely post-Constantine. Um, it's, it's really during Christendom. And it sparks up from time to time. Different places were worse about this than others. And, and, it, and it is a, a, an unfortunate pattern in, within Christendom, um, on and off throughout most of Christendom. <laughs> You know, to, and if it's not full conversion by the sword, at least, you know, then there's, there's certainly, you know, persecutions and pogroms and that kind of thing. Didn't we have that during, um, you know, the, uh, I guess, when the Europeans came to this country, didn't they do a lot of conversions to the Catholic Church by the sword? I thought I had um, read that or heard that through the American Indians or everything that, you know, Convert or die, you know. So Matthew, there, there's, an yeah, his history is a little mixed on that. Um, that's the way it's often painted: that the natives were forced to convert. Um, I think there certainly was, in some places, coercion. I don't think it was so much convert or die as it's sometimes been painted. I, I think that was a lot less common in the New World, um, but. But we really, yeah, and, that, and that's something we do see more in the parts of the New World that, um, that are coming from Catholic countries. The Protestant countries were less apt to do that. While we certainly have not always had in this country Jewish people treated well, um, you know, all of my Jewish friends can, can, can tell you experiences of, um, you know, being called Christ killers or other kids throwing rocks at them, that sort of thing on, you know, during, during Easter or Holy Week or something. But um, we've never had pogroms in America the way that that's happened in Europe. We've never had um, the overt persecutions that you would see um, during the Spanish Inquisition period, um, during you know, Nazi Germany, for example. 
and I, and I do think some of that is is that Protestant ethos. Um, you know, there was a time when I think in the Middle Ages England did expel the Jews from England, but by the time of the Reformation, you know, they were welcomed back. Now they weren't allowed to serve in various forms of public office because nobody were but people of the established church. But you know, Protestant lands have been have historically been less apt to do that than Catholic lands. And I, and, I, and I do think part of that is a different way that Protestantism has historically viewed the state. Um, there's a certain militancy to early modern Catholicism that wasn't as much there in Protestantism. I'm speaking of generalities, and you can, I'm sure you could find exceptions to, to all those. I mean, you know, so... I have a quick question. Uh, this might be kind of a little off, but uh, it's having to do with the Khazars. I don't know if you're familiar. The, ca the conversion of the Khazars by the Pharisees, and I, you kind of answered it a little bit, but uh, I'm guessing the conversion ability of the Pharisees and developed into later rabbinic Judaism would explain the conversion of the Khazars because there was a large group of Khazars which converted to Judaism in the Middle Ages, I think 8th and ninth century, maybe as early as the 7th. And, and they, they were kind of based in what's now Germany, is that right? Actually, they were based in what's the Crimea. Okay, I'm thinking of a different, of a different story. Okay, yeah, I'm thinking of a different, a different sort of thing. Okay. They actually um, had a kingdom. Yeah. They were like Turks almost. They were a Turkish tribe, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, I, I'm obviously not as familiar with that particular um, incidence. Um, there are some stories, and I, I can't think of them off the top of my head, in, in the Talmud about similar other, other mass conversions. You know, the, um, today, kind of ethnically and culturally, we really have kind of two main branches of Jews. You, we have the, um, the Ashkenazi Jews, which are really kind of Eastern European in their ancestry and in their customs, and then the Sephardic Jews, which are more uh, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, um, and to a lesser extent African in their customs. Um, and, and really, Ashkenazi really means German, <laughs> and Sephardi really means Spanish. Um, you know, the, and they're, they're kind of non-Hebrew languages. You know, Yiddish is a dialect of German, highly influenced by Hebrew. Ladino is a dialect of Spanish, highly in, medieval Spanish, highly influenced by, by um, Hebrew. But the, um, the evidence is, if I'm remembering right, that most of the Ashkenazi seem to be um, descendants of some, some of those types of converts in, in Eastern Europe. Um, that's, that's, that's what I remember. I could be wrong on that. And, and you know, yeah, the, the, Pharise the Pharisees' form of Judaism is a lot easier to convert into um, than, than some of the other forms. Um, you know, there's, while, while the, the Pharisees were highly able to adapt to changing, changing systems, you know, they rise out of, out of Babylon when the people are having to figure out how do we deal with being in exile, right? So they, they, how do we figure out how to be good Jews, good Israelites in exile? And, and you know, so, so the Pharisaic system really is an answer to that question. 
um, or it's kind of related to the way that, I mean, that's kind of proto-Phariseeism, but still we're, we're talking about kind of as things develop. And the Pharisees, again, are the only ones that are really able to adapt to the destruction of the temple. Um, that said, it did require some significant adaptation, but they were equipped to do that within their traditions. That same flexibility made them equipped to handle conversions better than some of the other groups. To, to convert to be an Essene was a grueling process that like nobody, even if you were a Jew converting to become an Essene, it was very difficult, much less if you were a pagan, a Gentile. Um, a lot less so for the Pharisees. And so I'm, I'm sure the, the Khazars um, are kind of, you know, another, a late example of that kind of thing. But, but yeah, that, you know, my, my brother's a convert, a convert, a convert to Judaism. And, um, you know, it takes a while, but it's, it's not, it's not hard to do. I, I know quite a few people that have converted to Judaism. So not so much in mass, but, but yeah, on an individual basis, it's not uncommon. I had another question about the monastic system. So I know the Christians started developing a monastic system. And I was kind of wondering about how that translated from the Jewish kind of aesthetic systems. Because I, I've, I've been looking for sources on that because I've been trying to, you know, kind of study that. And I haven't really found all that, that much of, you know, I've, except for a few excerpts and stuff like that about like, you know, uh, temple maidens and, and what that, but I haven't found like any, you know, historical documents or whatnot. So I was just wondering if you knew anything about that, that kind of practice. From what I've read, it seems that the development of Christian monasticism and Christian asceticism um, is kind of independent, even though in some ways it might look similar. Um, you know, Christian monasticism doesn't really develop Oh gosh, what until the second, third? Christian monasticism really develops as, as a reaction to Christianity becoming legitimate. You know, when, when Christianity was a non-tolerated religion in the Roman world, there was no reason for asceticism because every Christian was automatically an ascetic. You know, you were, you were weird and you had to live weird just because you were a Christian. When Christianity becomes established, so post-Constantine, you start to see cultural Christianity rise with that. That's the natural thing that's gonna happen. And so Christian monasticism, everything I've read anyway, indicates that it begins as a rebellion against this cultural Christianity um, rather than trying to keep alive um, the kind of thing the Essenes might have been doing or Old Testament Nazarites, that, that sort of deal. Um, we, we do see, again, I'm not sure how much this is related, but we do see disciples of John the Baptist well into the first century, uh, long after John was dead. We see some of this in the book of Acts. And so how much of, you know, did, did they perpetuate some of that old Jewish style um, asceticism? Maybe. We, we don't have a lot. I have not seen anyway a lot of information.
All right. Any, 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 anybody else? Well, we looks like we did better today. We, we, we were uh, only 15 minutes. Oh, one more hand. I see a CJ. Yeah, it was it was a little hard to hear, but if, but if I understood the, uh, the 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 question, I hope I understood it right. Um, we do see some of John's disciples showing up much further away than we would have expected them to in the Book of Acts, and we do see that the the apostles kind of correcting some of those guys. Um, oh, who, who are we thinking? Who am I thinking about in, in the Book of Acts? Um, Apollos, maybe? I think can Apollos might have been that guy. Can you actually repeat the question? Um, the question. I don't think anybody heard it. Okay, so if you can, can you all hear me better now? So, okay, hear no. you. Yeah, get right up on, get right up on, CJ. Okay. All right, so the question is more being like, yeah, you thought uh, Father Isaac in one of his other studies was saying, like, yeah, the re one of the reasons that there were a bunch of John the Baptist followers throughout or well after he died into the second century or first century was because of how far out they got without any of the new information like they were just behind because they kind of wandered out between the wilderness thing and just missing or didn't have the information or nobody told them before so it wasn't like a, oh i believe this it was i had no idea that john the baptist or what happened? Did 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 y'all get it that time? No. Okay. I'll 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 I'll, I'll paraphrase. Um, the question was if um, if if part of the reason why John's disciples were still found later in the first century was because they were just kind of the head of the the the, the Christian story. You know, the, the apostles. They you know they were and so they were further out and they hadn't yet found the gospel. They haven't heard the gospel um, yet. And so once they do, they end up kind of coming in. Um, we certainly do see that with the example of, I, I believe it was Apollos, who they met in Ephesus um, in the book of Acts. And, you know, I don't know how long John was preaching before he baptized Jesus. And, you know, we do know that Jesus' baptism was kind of the kickoff of Jesus' three-year ministry. And so we're really talking about four years from that baptism or so before the gospel starts to leave um, Palestine, but you know, Judea and Jerusalem and, and the Galilee. Um, but yeah, so so we do have years, a few years head start on the gospel for John's John's disciples. You know how they got that far out? Um, who knows? You know, I mean, but there was a lot of pilgrimage, a lot a lot of people traveling through, um, you know, Galilee, Judea, the Palestine area from all over the, the empire, because it was really the crossroads physically. So we, we do see examples of that. Um, you know, we don't know if there were still some holdouts of followers of John the Baptist, you know, who kind of didn't want to accept this new thing. Um, I mean, it's, there, there's not a whole lot of, that I've encountered anyway, studies on kind of remnants of, of his, of John the Baptist followers, but we do see 
that, yeah, that was something that the apostles were encountering later in the second half of the first century. Matt? I do have a little information on this because there is still a group in the Middle Eastern area. I don't know if they're still, or yeah, in Persia. They're called the Medeans, or I think that's how it's pronounced. And they claim to be followers of John the Baptist. They're actually a Gnostic cult. So they're kind of like, they kind of twist a bunch of other stuff, but they're, they still technically claim it. You sometimes will, that's why we actually ran into one a couple of years ago. So I'd imagine it's a pretty small group, um, kind of like the Samaritans, very small group of people. We, we did see their temple in a distance when we were, when we were in the land um, earlier this year. Um, yeah, there's still Samaritans around. Very, very few. <laughs> I'd imagine that's probably how that, those types of groups would, would still be. Okay, well, let's go ahead and call it an evening. Um, I don't think we're going to go too terribly many more weeks on this. Um, we're, we're, we're kind of hitting a faster pace than I usually do for these series, which is good. And, uh, but but I'll, um, I'll send out an email and let you all know what we're doing next week as soon as um, I make the final decisions. And I'm going to go ahead and um, I'm, I'm going to leave the room, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it, and I'm going to end the recording, but I'm going to let it go on for a while if you all wanted to kind of virtually hang out like you would in Ballard Hall. Um, that, was a, that was a request I got last, last week. So I'm happy to do that. And um, I, I hope to see some of y'all Sunday and I hope everybody is keeping staying safe and uh, being in prayer during this crazy time. I'll see y'all later. God bless. There you go.